0: This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and
1: culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, overcoming our culture's war on the American family written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician, Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks.
2: this is Russell Moore and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week we have a conversation to seek to do just that. The way the news cycle works right now, something absolutely unbelievable can happen and then a week later, we've all forgotten it. Uh, It's been several weeks now since uh, Paul Pelosi, the husband of Speaker of the House, uh, Nancy Pelosi, was attacked uh, in their home by someone who uh, apparently was searching for uh, the Speaker, was hospitalized after being beaten with a hammer. And what was surprising to me about this Uh, is is not the shock that that could happen in America. We've seen all kinds of awful things happen uh, in the United States. It was the response to it from some people, including a lot of professing Christians who were uh, having jokes about uh, this attack on social media and that sort of thing, which really revealed A kind of callous uh, nature to violence in America. And so I was thinking then, just as I had been for several weeks with all of the all of the ways that we're kind of holding our breath uh, in the United States, especially since January 6, uh, 2021, for any Uh, Time in which uh, political violence could erupt. I was wanting to talk to the person that I trust the most on these issues of domestic terrorism and violence, and that's Elizabeth Newman, who was formerly the Assistant Secretary for Counterterrorism and Threat Prevention in the Trump administration's uh, Department of Homeland Security. And she's now a commentator on ABC News and is Chief Strategy Officer for Moonshot, a social enterprise working to end Online harms such as uh, child sexual exploitation, uh, news disinformation, violent extremism, gender based uh, violence, human trafficking, uh, all of these various things that can happen online, and applying an understanding of ethics and, and human rights uh, and democracy to those things. Elizabeth, thanks for being with us today.
0: I'm so delighted to be with you, Russell. Thanks for having me and for addressing this topic on your show.
2: Yeah, I wish we were talking about happier things um, than political violence, but it it really is something that we need to we need to all be thinking about in American life right now. I, I'm curious when something like this happens. You're somebody who has devoted your life to uh, analyzing, uh, understanding sort of the mindset behind people who would. Uh, carry out violent acts. When something like that happens, whether it's the Paul Pelosi attack or or, or something else, are you shocked by that? Or is, is that something that you kind of are expecting right now in American life?
0: I, I'm sadly not shocked. I'm always saddened, but not shocked. In fact, if you were to look at the last two years, I and many of my colleagues in the counterterrorism community are actually surprised there haven't been more attacks. Mm. So maybe that's a little bit of a a good news story. But we are just there are a number of factors that are coming to bear and creating an environment that make it very easy for people to move to violence, whether you're talking about a lone actor, which is. The case of what happened with Paul Pelosi, or mass political violence, which we saw on January sixth. There, there are a number of environmental factors that are just creating the right conditions. It's kind of like um, mm. a weather warning. We, we are in that place where you're either in the tornado watch or the tornado warning. Like the mm-hmm. conditions are there. It's very hard to predict where it might occur, who, and what the vectors are and the targets. But, but you know it's going to happen. And so mm. now I'm, I'm sadly not shocked anymore.
2: When something like this happens, uh, usually uh, people will will say, uh, look at the way that rhetoric uh, was being used uh, targeting a, a political figure or or, or whoever uh, the person is, along with this sort of catastrophic uh, kind of uh, language and the rhetoric leads to this violence. Other people will often say, uh, especially if it's if it's um a violent actor on their quote-unquote side, uh, however they define that, will say, well, rhetoric doesn't lead to this kind of thing because you're dealing with unstable, uh, insane people and, and and the rhetoric, people who are using rhetoric can't really be blamed for this. How, how would you respond to that as somebody who's worked with this kind of stuff for so long?
0: You know, the first thing that comes to mind as a, a believer is out of the heart, the mouth speaks, the mm-hmm. Um, the rhetoric is indicative, even if it's just play acting, right? Because we do have a lot of performative politics that make their money and get their votes off of anger and outrage, but there's a heart condition there, right? Mm -hmm. And the heart condition that a mass part of our country at this point has bought into is that of anger and hate of the other. And I would suggest that you can't keep that going for too long without it spilling over into other action besides just our words. Now, let me put my counterterrorism hat on. What we know about political violence, about terrorism, the precursors to getting somebody to a point where they will use violence— to achieve their ends, you have to create this cognitive opening. Now, there's a little bit of caveat here around people with mental illness. There's other factors there. If somebody is mentally ill, the words actually can accelerate that violent action faster. Mm -hmm. But most terrorism... Is not conducted, if you look at the prevalence of mental illness in the general population compared to those who have committed attacks, like it's about equal. So it's wrong to say that it's a mental illness problem. There might be mental health challenges Mm-hmm. Involved. Some percentage of people have a number of factors that come into play. They have other vulnerabilities in their background that make them susceptible to that angry rhetoric and they radicalize. Now, I like to use JM Berger's definition of extremism. And the, his definition is when you have decided that the outgroup, whoever that is, mm-hmm. poses a threat to your in-group success or survival, and therefore hostile action is necessary. He defines hostile action as a spectrum. And it can go from bullying, just hateful words. So in a sense, if you use his definition using rhetoric, even if it's protected by the First Amendment, it's still extremism, right, if you Mm -hmm. were ostracizing the other in some way with your rhetoric. But the thing that most law enforcement are more concerned about tends to be the violence, the hate crimes, and then it escalates to terrorism, and genocide is a form of extremism. So there's a spectrum of hostile action. The concern we have is that when you have so much of Extremist rhetoric in the general population constantly, especially on certain news channels, um, it it will have a radicalizing effect on some individuals, and it's we're talking about a very small percentage of people that are vulnerable. Mm-hmm. However, anytime you start bringing that extremist rhetoric into the mainstream, a small percentage of 330 million people is still still a lot.
2: Mm-hmm. Not more than one or two letters to an editor that I've read in my life that I still remember. Uh, but this was one of them. And I've, I've mentioned it here before. It was someone writing into, I think, the New York Times, responding to our mutual friend Ben Sasse's book, uh, Them, on loneliness. And this was from a, a psychologist, professor of psychology psychology who said, it's not loneliness. It's 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 these actors that are alone. There is loneliness, but then they find community uh, and, and they find this kind of radical community online that, that has a, a family sort of bond feel uh, to them. And that's what radicalizes a lot of people. Do you agree with that? Is that, is that what you've seen?
0: It is certainly a driving factor. If you go back to Like the 2005 to 2011 time period, the University of Maryland's START Center studies terrorism. And they would tell you that from that early time period, most radicalization occurred in person, in real life. And then from 2011 to 2016, it completely flipped. And about 75 to 85% of radicalization was occurring online. And so what does that mean? One, it means our job is harder, right? If somebody is having to meet with somebody in person to get that piece of literature or to have the conversation, it's going to move slower. And there's more opportunities for law enforcement to detect that something might be amiss. When it's online, it's anonymous. You can access anything you want, and you are more likely to stumble upon it. Whereas in the other offline mode, you kind of have to be proactive and either somebody has to be proactive in recruiting you, or you have to be proactive in finding it. So there is a a huge aspect to radicalization occurs through networks and through a sense of belonging is, is largely one of the drivers behind or the need, the lack Mm -hmm. of belonging and the need to find belonging is one of the key drivers behind radicalization.
2: Well, There was a a person who had worked in in some social media uh, companies uh, and is very concerned about social media who was uh, speaking on a panel I was on uh, a few months ago who talked about this experiment of setting up an Instagram account for this fictional person. And just watching the way that that fictional person uh, could be offered white supremacist accounts uh, within just a matter of days, just because that account was liking very mainstream sorts of political uh, or or news sites that would just kind of move more and more uh, extremely. Is that something that you're concerned about, the way that the algorithms can actually... uh, slow motion radicalized people even if they don't they don't they're not seeking it out necessarily at first?
0: The data is a little inconclusive on this point right now. There have definitely been studies on on Facebook and Instagrams, especially around the election period and how quickly somebody could literally set up a profile, not touch it, and within weeks be offered QAnon conspiracies and other types of extremist content. So that that is concerning most people have enough resilience factors in their life that they're not going to be susceptible to random things in their feed. They're more likely to be persuaded by somebody they know suggesting mm-hmm. that they look at something.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: However, what we are concerned about is you at any given time have a you know decent population of what we would call vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. Um, these are people that have risk factors in their life that maybe through no fault of their own and um, they may, and I, just to be clear, at any given time in all of our lives, we might be vulnerable. Arguably, sure. most of us were vulnerable during the last two years of the pandemic, right? Like, mm-hmm. so there, there are certain aspects. Being vulnerable doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It's just life is hard. And yeah. uh, if you don't have certain um, resilience factors, protective factors in your life, you could be more susceptible to those arguments, those grievances. Um, and so, yes, that's where the algorithm becomes very concerning.
2: You know, because there are a lot of... Um, parents and a lot of youth pastors I know that listen to this show. And uh, it, it, some of them worry sometimes by saying, you know, what do I, my kid or the kid in my group plays video games that are really violent and and, and look really kind of bloody and disturbing. It, is that something I should worry about? Uh, or is this just the kind of thing that You know, an older generation has always said about the next generation down.
0: There again, I want the answer to be like, yes, video games radicalize. The data doesn't say that it does. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's what I will say, because I don't let my kids play video games. And it's probably, I'd have to explain to my 11 year old frequently. um, I've just seen too much. It's too, Mm. it's a hazard of my job. Like I've I've watched too too many real life attacks and it's just a little too disturbing to me. I think there is a desensitization aspect to it. And I think Mm. that if you might be radicalized for the reasons, the games can come into play as a um, preparatory action to be uh, willing to carry out an act of violence, but there isn't um, there isn't necessarily proof uh, in all of the, the research yeah. that's been done on this to say that if your kid plays video games, they're more likely to go commit an act of violence. Um, I, it's 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 more. I would I would put that more in the category of um, I would be concerned about who are they talking to online.
1: Ooh, um, mm-hmm. We
0: know that. Uh, both from a human trafficking standpoint as well as um, a violent extremism standpoint. Uh, People, uh, violent extremists and human traffickers use games to target kids. Um, Mm. To
2: start conversations. Yes,
1: to groom them. This episode is brought to you in part by Matthew 5-9 Fellowship, who supports evangelical pastors and leaders in shepherding their communities to live the gospel and place their identity in Jesus Christ above partisanship and societal divisions. Jesus has called his disciples to be peacemakers, and that call is particularly needed in our often toxically polarized society. The Matthew 5-9 Fellowship provides resources to help pastors, leaders, and their communities faithfully navigate difficult issues without dividing over them. It fosters relationship by connecting like-minded evangelical leaders across the country. Also, they care about the personal well-being of pastors and leaders, so they provide space and opportunities to experience spiritual renewal to ensure leaders flourish both privately and publicly. A polarized country needs a peacemaking church. Check us out at Matthew59.org. Sign up for our monthly newsletter. And download free resources, such as our Transcending Toxic Polarization booklet, using the code Matthew59.
2: You know, one of the common factors, it seems, uh, with uh, Muslim extremist uh, terrorist uh, groups uh, that we saw in the 9-11 era, uh, and uh, groups like Proud Boys and some of these other, uh, these other extremist groups, young men. Uh, Do you think there's something unique about our time that makes young men uh, maybe especially vulnerable to some of these things?
0: Having an 11-year-old son, this is like something that I am constantly thinking about through a very personal lens, not only for him, but for his friends. Um, Mm -hmm. how How do you make sure you build those resilience factors in young? So for parents and youth ministers, like, you'll hear me use the word resilience factors and protective factors. That is so, so crucial. Having self-esteem, a healthy self-esteem, having strong ties to community, having a nuanced understanding of religion and ideology. Mm. Um, and I, I really want to emphasize that nuance piece and what we notice in extremist rhetoric and in conspiracy theories, that there is a black and white offering, A there is only one right way, one right answer. And If you can train somebody or equip somebody to approach things with nuance, that actually has a tremendous ability to to build resilience um, when they get presented with those conspiracy theories in the future. So nuance is really important. Parental involvement, exposure Mm -hmm. to nonviolent belief systems and narratives, a diversity of nonviolent outlets for addressing grievance, societal inclusion and integration, and then resources to address trauma and mental health issues. Um, so those are some examples of resilience factors or ways that we can build resilience into society and, and
2: individuals. Well, you know, it sounds like from what you're talking about, the the ideal situation would be a church that has spiritual fathers and mothers and uh, a church that has a good news gospel and has a sense of belonging. And yet uh, I I just was uh, talking not long ago to an atheist, uh, completely non-Christian person who said, that when he goes online, when he sees in someone's bio, sinner saved by grace, he said, I just know that's usually going to be the person who's attacking me in the most vitriolic, uh, personal sorts of ways. And I just stopped and said, ah, that you know, I have to explain, sinner saved by grace is good news. So what happens that you have so many people within Christianity, uh, it, it seems, who are becoming radicalized and, and extreme. And in using even, uh, I've noticed a lot of language of spiritual warfare. Uh, the, these people, whoever the opposite people are from us, they're demons. And they use language that the New Testament explicitly says, does not refer to flesh and blood, uh, to wrestle with flesh and blood. I mean, how does that happen?
0: We have a discipleship problem, huge discipleship problem. Let's take out the fact that I, I think you and I agree that everybody that calls themselves evangelical when they get asked as they're walking out of the voting booth does not necessarily actually mean they're, a uh, you know, somebody right. that truly believes that Jesus is Lord and their Savior. You know, the people that actually think that they are Christians but aren't necessarily producing fruit. Mm -hmm. We have, we have a huge discipleship problem in the church. So it, to me, it's like, as I look at the problem set that our country is facing on one hand, I'm like, oh my goodness, look at these resilience factors that like, this is social science, right? Like Mm -hmm. they've done 20 years of research into why do people radicalize and what can we do to prevent radicalization? And the answers that they come up with, I'm like, oh, the, the church has the answer for this. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. And yet the flip side of that is the very place that could be offering help is actually the place where the sickness is. I mean, this is like that's, you know, a much deeper conversation we had. But my, my, the core of of what I've observed is that we just have a lot of people that are an inch deep societally. We just we clearly were exposed that the, the church in America is not deeply rooted. It is not producing good fruit. We have a, a, a pretty big discipleship problem.
2: Well, you know, what pastors would say is, how do I even start to address this? Because uh, all of those inputs that you're talking about uh, that people are are getting, maybe they're getting their news sources from the internet or from a, a really bombastic sort of cable news or, or something else, that's all coming at them all the time, and a pastor says, "How do I even start to address that when I have an hour a week in a good situation, maybe two hours? Uh, but that's really it. How, how can they? St- how can pastors or, or leaders or, or others? How how can you even start with something like that when that's hitting people all the time?"
0: I would say that the things that built the resilience factors for me were seeds planted 15 years ago. Mm. Um, And it was in-depth Bible study. It was being in a small group and praying for people. It was um, having normal trials and having people around me point me to the Lord and say, you can trust him. He will provide. And it's that daily walking out that when we... My husband and I reached a point in 2015, actually, and started to see that the political party I had been associated with was acting in a way that just felt very disconnected from my values and from my principles that I thought that party was associated with. Mm -hmm. And it it allowed me to feel safe to start to go, I I need to, to, I'll use the word deconstruct here, but it was a deconstruction of uh, not my faith as much as like, my politics was too involved in my faith. Um, mm -hmm. And I, and I had to, you know, go through a process. I I would argue, I'm still kind of going through the process to say like, how much of what I believe politically is really just a cultural version of Christianity versus what does the Bible actually teach? I don't think that this is something that happens quickly. I really do think that we are in a generational process here. There is nothing that that can replace just the steady teaching of God's word and being in community with people and encouraging people to keep looking at Jesus and not the chaos that's around us. That is the the great resilience factor, right? Like we know where our hope is. It's not here.
2: You know, it sounds like as you're talking, I'm thinking about uh, conversations I've had. I've, I've gotten to where I've started asking um, people who are experts in this sort of thing. I'll always ask, what's, what's something that uh, people can do to help young people who right now, it seems maybe they're going to college or trade school or going out on their own? and are facing tremendous mental health uh, issues. And I said, I'll always ask, what's the one thing? And every one of them has said, it's not about making sure that your children leave without mental health issues. It's whether or not there have been manageable crises, that the best thing you can do is to not keep your child from crises and difficulties, but to have manageable uh, difficulties and to walk with them through it so that they understand uh, how to you know, learn in little things and and then in big things Jesus uh, teaches. It sounds like that's almost what you're saying at a societal level, that what we're talking about is not the kind of health where we have everything together, but we have the the skill sets to be able to hit those potholes and not run off the road. Am I interpreting that right?
0: Absolutely, and I love I love that vision. That's great for me as a mom to keep in mind. When <laughs> I, I just want to protect them, um, <laughs> but yes, no, it, it there's there's something to, you know, going through the small thing, and when the next. Trial comes along, and it's harder. You can look back, right? Jesus, yeah. you know, God, God's con- constantly telling Israel to remember, remember His faithfulness, and and you know He He will prepare us for that next trial if you, if you let Him, if, mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. pay attention to what He might be leading you uh, to, to learn or to be engaged with. But yes, societally, it's it's kind of similar. Like we need, I'm going to borrow from a, a homeland security metaphor. I recall 2005, Hurricane Katrina, I was working at the White House at the time and we were the team. I I was on the counterterrorism team, but I got pulled in to do mm-hmm. response. And of course, afterwards, there was a whole bunch of lessons learned and how could this happen? And I just remember having this moment of the American people think that their government is God, that they mm. actually seem to think that we should be powerful and strong enough to never let a bad thing happen. You can't totally blame the American people. The politicians, when they run for office, kind of make all these promises that we we can solve all of society's ills. We can fix it all. We can protect you. We can keep you safe. And the, the reality is we're as humans, so small. Mm -hmm. If we all had a little bit more humility about the limitations that we have as human beings, that we can't do it all. I do think that there's a modern sickness. Alan Noble's book talks about this, that we just have been sold this bag of lies, that we can have it all, that Mm -hmm. we can self-actualize, that we can be our own. And there's like tremendous burden and trying to be your own, and that leads to tremendous anxiety and depression. Yeah. And clearly, I think Jesus is the solution here—that we belong mm-hmm. to, to Him and not not as our own. But if you want to take it at a broader societal level, if if we could restore to society a sense of respect for the limited nature of human beings, the mm fact that we do need to live in community we can't just be our own that that has i think led to things like significantly higher rates of anxiety in teen girls the apathetic challenge of young men ending up in their parents basements playing video games to the incel culture involuntary Celebrate, which is responsible for some pretty violent mass attacks in recent years like all of that's coming from this place of feeling a sense of hopelessness because we yeah. think we're supposed to be able to achieve this and we find out that we can't.
1: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County: A Bounty Hunter's Journey to Faith, Hope, and Redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman.
2: I know I started out talking about young men, particularly in kind of next generation radicalization, but it's very rare that I hear from someone saying my son or my big brother or whoever uh, has gone off and joined the Proud Boys. That has happened, but not not often. What does happen every day is I hear from young Christians who will say, what do I do about my mom and dad who have really uh, gotten into Maybe it's QAnon or maybe it's some sort of, uh, uh, I've, I've known people whose parents have gotten involved in left-wing kinds of conspiracy theories too, kind of echo um, echo conspiracy type things as well. But they've gotten involved in a conspiracy theory or they're, they've are they been radicalized, not in the sense that they're going to take up arms, but they're just angry and scared. And these younger Christians will say, look, I don't want to argue with my mom and dad. I love my mom and dad. I want to spend time with them? What do I do?
0: All of the data and research tells us you cannot argue somebody out of their ideology. So if they're fully radicalized, if they're you know, hook, line and sinker in, the best thing you can do is to love them and to be there. Mm. The people that have successfully been de-radicalized from extremist ideologies will tell you the key factor in their de-radicalization was love.
2: Yeah.
0: Which makes sense because... When we look at why people radicalize, it's because they're searching for belonging and significance. Mm-hmm. So the uh, antidote to that being love it actually makes complete rational sense. But it's the exact opposite of what we want to do in the moment when yeah. say, a loved one is telling you, you got to believe me about these QAnon deep staters and mm-hmm. you got to protect your kids. It, it can be really difficult to have those conversations. So I, I, I'm not saying this flippantly. It usually does not help to try to engage on the conversation itself. But being present, loving them, and you never know when, I mean, prayer, obviously. Yeah. Pray, pray, pray. And you just never know when that opening might occur. It may take years, mm-hmm. and it, it mm-hmm. may never happen. When we look at it uh, from a counterterrorism perspective, we often say the goal is disengagement, not deradicalization. Because it's easier to convince somebody to disengage from potentially harmful behavior, potentially violent behavior than it is for them to give up their ideology before somebody is fully radicalized when they're in this, what we would call radicalization curious
2: stage. So they're just kind of checking out uh, things and looking at new sources. Yeah
0: that is a great time to try to counter ideology or disinformation or whatever it is that they've been exposed to. Um, but the best way to do it is to suggest not, you certainly don't approach it as you're an idiot or, yeah. um, you know, you don't want to belittle them. You want to suggest that they might be being manipulated because mm-hmm. we as human beings do not like the idea that we're being manipulated. So you could do some research. If you were not vulnerable. I would not suggest if somebody is psychologically vulnerable that they go to try to research ideologies. But if you are in a a good place, you can go do some research on those ideologies and you can easily find through a number of good organizations. ADL is really great at this. My company Moonshot does work in this space as well, but there are a number of experts out there that understand that ideology and can poke holes in it, Mm. but but you want to be a little nuanced and sophisticated in how you do it. So what you don't want is for that person to feel like they're being made fun of. If you do get to a place where um, you are concerned about somebody Going a little too far, um, there are groups like Life After Hate or Parents for Peace. They have websites. Uh, the McCain Institute recently put together a guide on helping parents of teens to know what to look for if uh, they're engaging with harmful content online. So there are a number of resources out there now to be able to help you figure out the right way to have that conversation.
2: So it sounds like what you're saying is, in most cases... What you're trying to do, if your mom and dad are, you know, wanting to talk about Bill Gates is taking us all over with microchips or whatever, that what you're trying to do is not so much subtract something, their ideas about that, as it is to add something, that connection and keep the connection um, as much as you can going forward. Is that? Am I seeing that right?
0: Absolutely. If you are concerned that the individual is considering joining a group that might be violent, that might be a step at which your engagement might look a little different and or might involve asking law enforcement for help. If we're just talking about, and this is the case for most of us with older parents, they're not in a position to do something violent. Right. So, so for most, it's a a matter of like, how do I handle Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas gatherings and to do that in a way that still honors them and loves them, but also, you know, lets them know that I'm concerned. It is about I love you no matter what. And mm-hmm. when you have those opportunities to point them to something healthier, like scripture, like, you know, have you been in church lately? Have you, are you doing a Bible study? Like anything that can redirect them to something healthier, get their mind focusing on other things, that's really great. Yeah. The most important thing is your presence in their life, unconditional love.
2: You know, Elizabeth, one of the things that really is concerning me right now. Um, I mean, as we're recording this, uh, we're in the aftermath of a a news cycle where uh, Kanye West, artist formerly known as Kanye West, um, has been spewing not just anti-Semitic stuff, but uh, pro-Hitler stuff. We find out that former president, your old boss, hosted... Um, Kanye West and a a literal Nazi sympathizer, Nick Fuentes, uh, at his at his house for a, a meal, and you you stop and you say, "Wait a minute, I didn't really think that in 2022 what we would be arguing about are Nazis, you know." And it it just seems to me as though um, the the, the the Overton window just keeps kind of moving uh, and and the kinds of things that we're having to confront and deal with, it's getting more unpredictable and more bizarre. Is that just because I haven't been paying close enough attention to what's been going on on for 50 years or is it really a unique sort of time?
0: Certainly the internet allows things to be in our face in a way that Forty years ago, fifty years ago, you know, you would have to be in a certain community in order to see it.
2: But I mean Dwight Eisenhower wasn't um, having dinner with Nazis. I mean so that that is different. I mean, even we didn't know
0: if you go back to the twenties, we we wow. had, you know, uh some yeah. famous generals in World War yeah. uh two and and some Supreme Court justices that yeah. were wearing Klans hoods and watching down Pennsylvania That's Avenue. Right. So, uh, fair enough. so yeah. yeah, I mean it th- America has a race problem, a racism mm-hmm. problem. We have an anti-Semitism problem. And it's hard, you know, when the the dinner with Ye happened, my first reaction was like, well, yeah, this is who he is. I mm-hmm. <laughs> just kind yeah. of, I'm like, I, it was hard for me to even know what, like, do maybe we just shouldn't cover it anymore. Because he's already shown that, it's not that Trump's going to go jo- join a Nazi group. It's just that he wants the support of the Nazis or whoever else, and he—if mm-hmm. you like him, then he will like you. This is his character. This—this is—shouldn't be a surprise to any of us, and yet at the same time, I—I I find it a little concerning that I—I I don't know if we're doing a good job of, of educating the the younger generations about everything from anti-Semitism to white supremacy, to like, it is yeah. kind of interesting to me that the reason this seems to be able to grow and spread and that it has become mainstream is because people don't have that sharp memory of the Holocaust.
2: Well, you know, Elizabeth, you're a Christian and yet you're working, I don't mean and yet, but and also you're working in these areas that are really dark. I mean, domestic Uh, terrorism and um, racial radicalization and child exploitation and trafficking, all of these issues. I mean, these are heavy, heavy uh, issues. How do you work in that area and just not give up and just collapse under it? You know, it it just seems like that would be, it would take a unique kind of preparation to, to keep your heart from getting to despair when you look at all these ugly things?
0: I think the first 10, 15 years of my career were so driven by a single-minded desire to make sure that what I felt on 9-11, no other American would ever have to feel again. And I say that in a personal sense, but I know that every single one of the colleagues that I've worked with during that time period, that's what it was for us. Never again. We're not Mm going to let that happen. And in some ways... That allows you to kind of ignore some of the side effects. And I I would say that some of the people that have come into the field, into counterterrorism and um, countering extremism field in the last 10 years, have done maybe a good job of educating us older people about Mm -hmm. the importance of taking care of our own mental health and that exposure to these ideas, exposure to the constant stress of fear of the next attack, it does take a toll. Mm -hmm. You start to realize that it, and this comes down to nuance, you, you can both want good things for your country and want to provide a safer place for your children and know that the ultimate hope is not here yeah. and that God, I know what I know how it all ends. It's those two things. I I cling to His sovereignty. I cling to His goodness, and then I I constantly am preaching the gospel to myself and and refixing my eyes. But that hope in yeah. what is coming, not in the present circumstances, and however He wants to use me, my family, others that I can encourage to perform His work is great. Yeah, when you start to understand the why people buy into this ideology, it actually creates an empathy because in a a bit of like, there but for the grace of God go I. Like I, I, you know, hit the jackpot and being born to you know, godly parents and, you know, getting to live in this country Mm -hmm. and, you know, getting to be able to study scripture or even access to the Bible, right? Like all of those are huge blessings. And when you see the darker side, yes, it turns your stomach, but at the same time, it's also kind of a contrast of absent that blessing, like when you see evil kind of reigning, um, in somebody's life, it creates an empathy that allows you to to try to. F- you're constantly figuring out, like, how not only can, how can I protect potential victims, but how can I help that person who yeah. really is in a dark, dark place.
2: Yeah. Last question for you: What if there's a 17 year old Elizabeth Newman uh, who's listening to this uh, show today who thinks maybe God's calling her into government? in some way, maybe in national security, maybe in counterterrorism, maybe in some other uh, way. But she she thinks that's kind of the way that God's God's designed her and, and sort of the direction that she's going. What advice would you have for her?
0: One, be grounded in a biblical community. It is tough work. And you need godly people around you to encourage you and to pray for you. And to be rooted in scripture. And I and I don't mean <laughs> don't mean that in the Christian nationalist view of the world. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. just so that you can know where your hope is coming from. And then find a uh there's some excellent programs out there in national security and in homeland security, depending on which field you want to go into. But it is there are a number of different tracks. My career was a very abnormal one. So I, I don't know that it's one that you can plan. Uh, mm-hmm. But what I can glean from my experience, it was take advantage of the opportunities as they come up. You never know what kind of door might open and you and you go, well, that's not what I, that's not the path. That's not what I planned. But sometimes God's opens those doors and, and redirects you into a different way. So be open to mm-hmm. those opportunities, be humble, be hungry, work hard, all of those Uh, sadly in the Mm -hmm. workforce. Finding somebody that's a hard worker and humble is harder and harder to come by. Read a lot. Uh,
2: Read, 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 read. That's a good word. Elizabeth Newman, I'm thankful uh, to God for your expertise and your heart. And it's been great to have you on the program today. Thanks for being with us.
0: Thank you, Russell. I loved being with you guys today.
2: Thanks for listening. Links are always in the show notes for resources mentioned in this episode, including a link about how you can have a trial membership to Christianity Today. Be sure to subscribe to the program, send an episode along to a friend who might benefit from it, and leave us a review when you can. It helps other people to find the show wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Russell Moore, and this is The Russell Moore Show from Christianity Today. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper.
0: Hosted by Russell Moore. Produced by Ashley Hales. Associate producers Abby Perry and Azari Phelps. CT Administration provided by Christine Kolb.
2: Social Media by Kate Lucky. Director of Operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Production assistance provided by Core Media. Audio engineer is Kevin Duthu. Coordinator is Beth Grabencourt. Video producer is John Rowland. The theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton.